Hello and welcome back to the New York Podcast. Today on the New York Podcast, we're going to talk about the five boroughs. What are they? Nobody knows. That's what I I uh, I, I really want to write. Uh, I want to have like a documentary about New York, but it's like it's it's like trying to solve a mystery that's not a mystery. Where they're just like Brooklyn. What even goes on there? Queens. Who's from there? Manhattan? Does anybody live there? And it's just an hour and a half of that. And it's just to see how many people in New York I can upset. And I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. I think the defensiveness of New Yorkers about New York is enough to get them to believe a litany of different completely false uh, statements. And if you're asking, wow, is Cooper waging war on the city of New York? Uh, sure. If that would help my comedy career, if that would get my name out there, uh, then why not? Uh, if there, I'm sure there's another 24-year-old doing comedy in New York with a podcast, maybe even solo. I think me and him should team up to be like nemeses, you know what I mean? And maybe both city could get behind us. And the best part about it was, is if both cities are defending us, they won't realize that we're not that good of comics yet because we're so young, you know? And that would be exciting. But I've had an interesting day. I woke up, decided to immediately read an article about a comic whose success I'm confused yet not confused by. I read the article, and I was uh, more upset. Uh, and then I got into the uh, the Comedy Store Door Guy group chat, and we started trying to find a new name for our Door Guy show. And, you know, that is a good example of comedy, because we can't sell tickets to this fucking thing. And this show is full of, you know, a lot of these Door Guys at the Comedy Store and I'm going to exempt myself from this conversation because I don't want this to, to be biased, either good or bad. A lot of these door guys at the comedy store really do have a future in comedy. Um, some, you know, could really be huge. Um, and, and if not huge, a lot of these guys, I think, are going to work for the rest of their life. In some capacity, there's, there's a lot of guys on the staff. And by guys, I mean people. A lot of people on the staff that are, that are so funny that I really think they are part of the future of comedy. And we can't sell fucking tickets because none of us have big enough names, you know, to sell the tickets. And it's just funny because, you know, I'm reading this article uh, about this comic and I, I see them around and I don't think they're very funny, uh, but they have sort of personality and I guess connections. And so they're really skyrocketing and they, they can't help but sell tickets. And it's so funny that on the other hand, we have, like, we have so many door guys. We have, like, 30 other people. And we can't, we can't fucking sell out that show for, for like, for anything, you know? It's, like, it's impossible. And uh, it's not something that doesn't make sense, you know? It's, like, this person is popping off because, you know, they check some boxes, I guess. And, you know, they're, they're, the industry is really pushing them. So I get why they sell tickets. I get why things are going well for them. I get why they are getting these opportunities on on TV shows and things like that. Um, and I also get why a show full of a lot of essentially no names is not selling. 
and you can't act like the world is fucked up for that. But it is, you know, it's just, it's a bummer. It's a bummer, you know. Uh, you wish, you know, it's like, it's like like having a show like this, even though it is at the comedy store, it's almost like running a small business where you're like, listen, don't, don't just go into Barnes & Noble because you see it advertised a lot. That's where they want you to shop, you know. Go to the shop around the corner. I just watched You've Got Mail, so that's what was in my head. Um, but it is too bad, you know, and it's, I get it. It's just, it's tough to get people into a show of people they don't know. But there's a real, I don't know, I've been trying to appreciate my position in stand-up, which is a pretty much completely unknown 24-year-old. Uh, the only people with any power that know me are are successful comics at the comedy store. And that's good because those guys are the people that I want to know me right now because they know who I am. They know I'm still in the process. They've been nice to me. I like to think they see good things in me. I know some of them do based on how they treat me. I'm fine, you know, with that. And I'm also fine with that because it means that when I get on stage, nobody really knows who I am. And uh, I'm trying to enjoy that because there's a lot of freedom in that. You know, when you're just nobody, when the crowd is like, well, this is, you know, I'm not excited he's on stage. I don't know who this is. I also am maybe a little nervous because I don't know who this is. I don't know what he's going to do. And then you go up and, you know, I'm not an edgelord comic. I, I, I don't ever want to, like, say things just to be so crazy, you know, but it's like you can just go up and, and you can say anything. And they're like, what the fuck is this? And it's exciting because they're like, this guy we've never seen just comes out of nowhere. And he says all this crazy stuff, and I, I loved it, and now he's gone. And that's exciting. It's like Dada art, you know what I mean? It's like there's nothing sticking, you know? And maybe if I fucking said my name on stage more, I'd get a couple more followers. You know, people come up after and say, that was really fun, you know? Um, but for the most part, you know, a lot of your sets at that point are very fleeting because, you know, I'm a small fish in a big pond, and I can't expect people to want to, to latch on to me and keep listening to my podcast when you got, you know so many fucking guys who are so much more successful and talented with other podcasts and stuff to listen to. I get it. But it sucks because that concept of a young comic with, you know, nothing to lose, everything to gain, and and a lot of eagerness, and also realizing that nobody's really watching, so why give a fuck in some sets, um, is an exciting show to see, I think. I wish I could sell that idea to people. I wish I could tell them, like, hey... If you see a famous person, you know, they are protected by their fame, but they also, you know, they got to be a little careful. And also, they, the crowd is expecting a certain perspective from them. And so it's a good show. You're going to get something good, but you kind of know what you're getting. And I don't think that's bad, but I'm just saying that's one show. That's the best version of a show. You get to go to the comedy store. Bill Burr comes on stage. He's so great at what he does. And then he comes out, and he's great at what he does, and you get exactly what you want. I think that's great. What I also think is great is after you leave that show, when a door guy says, hey, there's a free show upstairs, you go up there, you see somebody you don't know, you don't know what to expect, and somehow that's also great. And that's a new feeling, you know? I think both sides of that are, are very fun and legitimate in stand-up. I'm not saying our show is as good as any show with Bill Burr on it. I'm not saying that we're not as good as him. But I am saying that there are two worlds of comedy, and I think seeing both those worlds is good for comedy fans, you know? I like when people come to the comedy store and see us and see young people 
that they've never heard of and they like it and they actually are able to stop having that feeling of who is this guy I'm just kind of waiting for the next guy into where they relax in their seat a little bit and go I trust this guy I'd actually like to hear what he has to say next that's a really cool thing you know and and usually that takes a comedy fan to to really get into which is which is okay but comedy fans are are interesting because you know they're specific people like the word the fact that comedy fans is even a term that can be accurately used is a sign that comedy is is really a, something nobody gives a fuck about because you've never heard anybody say they're a music fan and if you do you know that person's a douchebag you know people will sit in a restaurant and listen to some jazz singer that they've never heard of because first off music is much less abrasive you don't have to actually listen you can go in and out but also we all like music, you know? It's just, you know, it's there and we can get into it. Comedy's interesting. It takes a very curious, interested person who's a fan of comedy to say, I will see this show with a bunch of people I don't know. And I think those people are really nice. I think they're very cool. Uh, mainly because if there's any success for me in the future, it will come from those people. So I love those people. But, you know, but you wish you could get a normal date night you know, a, a cute guy and a cute girl that both dressed up, you know, they almost look like they're going to a work Christmas party, you know, like not too nice, but they're trying to show off a little, some nice people. And I think a fun end to that date night is seeing something where they, where they're like, whoa, like the first show was great. Fucking Bill Burr, Bobby Lee, Andrew Santino, Jessica Kirsten, you know, all these, like they crushed. That was awesome. But then we went up, and there are these young people that were also really funny, and they were saying some wild stuff. And you're starting to think, who is this guy I've never heard of that's up here saying wild stuff? I think that's more fun. I think that's what, that's when you fuck hard, you know? You go out on a date night. It's a date night. You both want to fuck when you get home. But if you just see good stuff, you don't have that wild that fucking lick a sweaty butthole energy. You know what I mean? You got to go to the shitty late show with the young comics who have been chosen by the booker of the world's greatest comedy club. So they're not nothing, but they're still young. They're crazy. They're eager. They're hungry. You got to get that energy to where you get home and you act like two honey badgers fighting over a honey bun. You know what I mean? That's what you want. But that's it's a tough sell. You can't set. It's funny because what I'm saying is I'm trying to sell that we are not famous yet, trying to sell that we're not successful, trying to sell that we are are under the waterline, you know? It's almost like stand-up comedy. The famous guys are are nice boats on the water. Some of them speed boats, you know? They're still young, they're coming up, they're eager. Some of them are barges, just you can't sink them, you know what I mean? Just fucking Dave Chappelle, just bar you can't fucking sink that, you know? And I guess, I guess the online haters would be pirates, but that's not important. So you have all these boats on the waterline, and that's what people see. They go, this is stand-up comedy. What they don't know is there's a bunch of fucking just squids like me under the surface. That if you see that squid swimming around, you're a little more interested in that than you are in how, how big of a boat that is. And you go, what the fuck is that, though? And you go, that's, oh, that's, that's Cooper Lydon, you know? That's exciting, you know? It's, it's these fucking grubs, you know? You know, also what's exciting about the show is, like, some of the people on it I don't think are that funny. You know what I mean? Now, I don't, 
I don't judge every door guy equally. No door guy should. No comedian should. You know, there are door guys that are funnier than other door guys. There are door guys that are notoriously awful at stand-up. I would never name them because I love every single one of them. But you know what I mean? So you go to that show, you might see somebody that's just utter and complete dog shit. And, you know, you might also see somebody who in who in five to ten years could be selling out theaters in the same city you saw them in a small room in, you know? I don't know. I think that's exciting. Like, you know, some of the... Some of the most fun concerts you go to are like, you know, I used to go to uh, this this gay-ass, uh, I'm going to say, quote, punk club in downtown L.A. And I say, quote, because it wasn't actually crazy. It just it was in an alley, and it looked dingy, and there were young bands, and some bands that had great success came out of that place. But it was also a lot of, like, middle class, even rich kids from the Valley kind of cosplaying as, like, we're fucking hardcore. But my point is, nonetheless... When I'd go to those shows, I would see bands that weren't famous. I would often see bands that I, I didn't know. Um, and we'd mosh and whatever. And they, they and if you just give yourself to whatever this person you don't know is doing, you know, you don't know the lyrics, you're not singing along, you don't know what to expect. If you really give yourself to that, it's a lot of fun, you know? I talked on this podcast a while ago. I went to uh, a Billy and the Kids show, which is Bill Kreutzman, one of the drummers of the Grateful Dead, and the Kids, which are younger guys, and they play Grateful Dead songs. But when I went, Bill Kreutzman, literally the only member of the Grateful Dead in this band, was sick. So now I'm going to a show to hear Grateful Dead songs, and, and there's not a single member of the Grateful Dead playing any of these songs. Which, if you know anything about the Grateful Dead, is kind of okay, because they got a lot of cover bands. But, you know, at first I was like, ah, shit. But then, these fucking kids, they knew they had to put on a show, and God did they. It was one of the greatest concerts I ever went to. They had a... 12-minute version of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. I was screaming. But it's stuff like that. You give yourself to the moment that you're in and the people trying to give you that moment, and you can have some really special times. I think there's really something to be said about the excitement of a show where you don't know the people on it. But if the people on it are, are actually trying, if the people on it have confidence in themselves to, to tell a bit that... Maybe you only want to hear from a famous person. That's a cool thing, you know? Because you don't want to go to a show of a bunch of unknown comics where they're playing it safe, you know? But but I think it is kind of fun where you, if you come to the Door Guy show that's happening tonight, this is going to come out tomorrow, so you won't know it. But by the time you're seeing this, I have already performed stand-up, and you missed it. But I think there's something exciting, you know, about... Well, here's 24-year-old Cooper Lydon. Here's his take on the Bud Light controversy, you know? And it's not the greatest joke in the world, but I'll tell you what, it gets laughs. I rely on it. I throw it in the set whenever I want, and it does well. I think that's fun, you know? It's, 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 you know, it's this thing that a bunch of people are mad at, and, you know, if a big comic's talking about it, you feel safe. You go, this is okay. He's a good driver. We'll get there safely. Somebody like me... I've only been doing it six years. I'm a no-name nobody's doing it. Maybe you get a little nervous. You go, wow, he's okay. He's talking about the trans Bud Light can. How is this going to work? Then you listen to it, and all of a sudden, oh, okay, you're laughing now. You know, that's exciting. You gave yourself to the moment, and you got something from it, you know? But it's it's hard to sell uh, a lack of success for a show. It's... it's uh, it's pretty much impossible, and it's pretty much impossible in comedy because 
you know, like I said, it's it's not a world-renowned and loved art form such as music. You can sell uh, a show of an unknown band because people go, okay, well, I like punk, and they're a punk band, so I'll go see this punk band as long as it's punk. But, you know, comedy doesn't really have that. It's not like somebody's like, oh, well, I love storytellers, and this guy's a storyteller, so I'll go. Like, that requires an, an immense amount of knowledge. And really, this comedy is just not... There's not much of definitive genres like that, you know? So it's like you're trying to sell a subsection of an art form that's already not crazy loved, you know? You have to remember that, that, like, outside of America and Britain, stand-up, for the most part, is not really a, a known art form. You know, I mean, I know you're probably listening to this and being like, well, what about Netflix? You're right. Tons of comedy fans in, like, Australia and New Zealand and, you know, Indonesia and and all over the world. You know, there are comedy fans everywhere. But in terms of, like, sustainable markets where tickets are sold, America is really just far and away number one. I think, you know, England is behind us by probably a wider margin than even I realize. And then everybody else is kind of scattered around the world, you know, because comedy has reached all over the world. But I will say most people in most countries have never watched it. You know what I mean? India has a billion people, you know, and you could count the number of famous like Indian and if you want to include Pakistani comics, you could count the number of famous ones like on one hand, you know? And I'm sure if you went to India and you asked them, hey, do you like stand-up comedy? They'd be like, the fuck are you talking about, okay? What are you talking about? If I want entertainment, I'm watching a Bollywood movie. What, is, what did you even say to me? I don't know what that is, you know? It's a, it's a purely American art form, which is odd that people don't... Because we talk about how, like, blues and... I guess bluegrass um, and jazz are all American art forms. Nobody mentions that comedy is also that, because if you don't know comedy, stand-up comedy was started during vaudeville, and a stand-up comic was just a guy that would come up in between acts like a sexy lady or maybe a bearded lady. Um, those were the two kinds of ladies back then. A stand-up comic would come up, and he would tell... Probably jokes he didn't write. They would be street jokes. And he would just fill time with the idea of entertainment in the air. Of like, well, this guy's going to come up. We're just filling time. But he'll tell some jokes. And so there's something to watch on stage. It was almost like a commercial, you know, before there were commercials. It was just something to fill time. And I think that aspect, that start for comedy actually is still seen in comedy today and i seen in the way that you know i think it was colin quinn he was on a podcast he was saying you know, comedy is crazy because some people watch it like this and then they talk to their friend in front of them and they turn to the side and they look at the comic and they go uh-huh uh-huh give it 30 seconds don't even wait for the punchline okay talk to my friend some more ba 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 you know it's a lounge act they almost view it like a jazz singer where it's like they're doing their thing I'm going to talk to my buddy over here. We'll see what he's got going on. When really it's actually the most, I, I would honestly say the most fragile live art form that exists. Because it's like, you think about music, you can tune in and out. 
uh, a play you shouldn't, but you kind of can. You know what I mean? You can kind of remember, like, right, they're dating. I'm going to fucking go on my phone for a little bit. They're still dating? Okay, go. Oh, broke up. You know what I mean? With stand-up, it's like a guy starts a five-minute bit, and if you miss the first two minutes, the last three is when shit's ramping up. Punchlines are coming. The common understanding of what he's talking about has hit the room. But you miss the you miss the train, and now you're off it, you know? And it's just one guy. It's not like a play where even if you don't know what's going on, you can still be like, I like the costumes, you know? It's just one guy. It's very fragile. But it's treated like it's uh, something that can be ignored and kind of tapped into whenever you want. That's still seen, you know? The fact that people don't know they can't talk in comedy clubs is an example that it's just the basic facts of the art form itself are not understood. And I don't blame people for that. I don't get mad at them because if you go to the comedy store main room, there could be 300 people in that room and you can say, is this anybody's first comedy show? And half the room might make noise. So that, that answers you something. Imagine if you were at a music concert and the guy goes, make some noise if this is your first concert. Even if you're at the Greek theater, all you would hear is like a scattered 20 father and sons be like, woo, you know, like for his, for his seven-year-old kid. Like that's the only, you know. So, so you just, you know, you have to understand that. And I do think that that kind of disrespect of comedy, you know, it can suck at times. It sucks that that guys devote their life to this. Like the other night I was watching Bill Burr. He was in the main room. He was doing new stuff, you know, cause he released that hour. So all this stuff is, all this stuff is unseen. It's still getting worked out. It's really exciting to see it. I saw him do the same joke three times. The last time I saw it, it seemed like he had a day where he sat down and rewrote it. And that shit's just crushing now. And it's only going to get better. But anyway, he's on stage crushing. And there's two girls, I think about my age, you know, usually 24-year-old girls around my age. I don't know if they like Bill Burr. I think if they actually listen to him, they'd love him. I think some people go, well, he's a, he's a white guy. I don't get, you know. But they're just, they're talking. And, you know, it's it's not, they're not bad people. But they don't, they don't, they don't care about this particular comic. So they're just talking. And I told them to, to be quiet. And I kept it brief. And they were nice about it. And they were quiet. But what I wanted to say was, hey, guys, just so you know, this guy is one of the best living people who does this. Of all the people who are alive that do stand-up, this guy is, like, easily top five, if not top two or three. You're lucky to see this. And even if it's not your style, even if it is a man in his 40s talking about his wife... There is something for you in this. He's really good at what he does. You should just sit down and you should see if you like it because it's really special that you get to see him. People pay a lot of money to see him. You get to see him in a small room doing jokes the world hasn't heard yet, and you get to see the process of one of the greatest living stand-up comedians. But that's the thing with stand-up where the Bill Burr equivalent in music is, you know, like fucking... Uh, I want to say Prince or something, you know, something like that. You know what I mean? It's like you're, you would never, you would never go to a Prince show and, and just be like, it's not really my type of guy. And then just talk, you know what I mean? I mean, I guess Prince does seem like a gay black dude. So it'd be kind of fucked up if you're like, I don't really like those people, you know, but he's not gay, but boy, did he act like it. I also don't think Bill Burr would love me comparing him to Prince. 
but you know what I mean. F- Willie Nelson, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a thing with comedy where it's e- even that teaches me a lot that even if on the one in a million chance I had a career even close to Bill Burr, there would still be people in the audience who hadn't even heard of me and who don't care to listen to me. You know, that's crazy. It, and I think Bill is still so great because he's he's a guy that, from my small experiences, parking his car, seeing him on stage, seeing how he moves in the world, reminds himself every day of that fact. That goes, hey, just because I can fucking sell out Radio City doesn't mean every person at the fucking show, especially a club show where he's not the only one on the lineup, it doesn't mean that every one of those people fucking knows me and I can just phone it in and this is the Bill Burr parade. That guy goes up and he performs like he's a kid my age trying to get into a club. Like he really cares about it, you know? And there's there's not a lot of ego in what he's doing, you know? And I think that keeps you sane, you know? I think I've said it before on this podcast, but one time I was uh, parking cars, I was standing in the lot, and he came by, he was holding a lit cigar, and he, he asked me, he goes, hey, I got this cigar, I wanted to smoke it in the back, in like that back area, outside area in the back, so it's a little more private, but it's already lit. Is it okay if I walk through the kitchen to get to that area with this lit cigar? And I just looked at him and I go, nobody's going to tell you to do anything. And, you know, I think in the back of his head, he kind of knows that, but I also think he kind of resents that. I don't think he likes that. I think he goes, yeah, but if I wasn't fucking famous, everybody would scream at me for walking through the kitchen with a lit cigar. Remembering that, I think, keeps you a good comic. Because if you don't, then you go on stage with the thought of, I am untouchable. I am entitled to this success. This success means I am worth it. It has nothing to do with, with you know, the way stuff works. Because, you know, you just, you gotta, you gotta remember that, you know? I don't, I don't know how I really got on this tip or where I was going with it. But it's interesting how humbling stand-up is at every level. You know, and and something about it not being a big enough art form, even though it's huge in America. I think any American listening to this is like, what do you mean? It's like, think about it across the world. It's not a big thing. You know, I think I think, you know, that also adds to the fact that sometimes comics don't have too long of lifespans. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, we got to, you know, if you're not selling tickets, it's not big enough to just let you hang around, you know. So on with the next person that the industry is going to promote. You got to be aware of that, you know. How are you going to stay relevant, you know? I I think every comic now, even though we are in a comedy boom, should release every special with the thought of people who have never seen comedy, who have never seen me, are going to watch this. Even if I'm Bill Burr and this is my fifth Netflix special and it's kind of fucking ridiculous that you're watching this without having heard of me, I'm still going to act like you haven't. It's like Michael Jordan, you know, where when he played, he said, I play... Because I know there's people coming who have never seen me play, but they expect something because they've heard my name. And so I'm, I'm playing for the kids in the stands that want to see Jordan. I can't have a night off, you know, because doesn't that suck? You know, I, rem- I remember I went to a Lakers game. It was when Kobe was still playing. And for some reason, he just he wasn't playing that night. And I was just like, what the fuck? This is just the guys are so big. You just don't see them. Some- what is this? You know? You got you to gotta act like you haven't been there before, you know? And 
you know, I think people who love comedy are people who are going to always challenge themselves and try things. And, you know, that stops the, uh, that stops the clapter. That stops the hype getting in the way of actually taking a risk on stage, you know? I think sometimes you get so famous, especially if you're known, you know, if you're like Louis, if you're like Burr, if you're like Chappelle, uh, you're known for being risky comics, which then is an interesting box to be in because you get on stage, and even when you say something crazy, it's not even a risk anymore because the people in the crowd, there's a decent chance they might know who you are, and that's what they want to hear. There's also a decent chance, though, that a lot of the people don't know who you are, and they're like, what the fuck is this guy? Why is he acting like this, you know? But it's the comics that love comedy and force themselves to challenge themselves. Like, uh, you know, Bill Burr's special at uh, Red Rocks is really great. Uh, I felt really bad. I only watched half of it a while ago, and I just finished the other half, and I was like, God, I'm so stupid. Why didn't I finish this? But, you know, he has this great joke about abortion, and I, I won't tell it, but I will say at the beginning of it, there are, in while he's kind of explaining the premise, uh, pro-life, pro-choice people clap, and then he goes, shut up, you're not going to love the whole idea, and then he goes on, and then pro, pro-life people start clapping, he goes, shut up, you're not going to like the whole idea, and I, I, I like seeing that in a comic, I trust that comic more, because what he's saying is, I'm a person, I'm my own person, I'm not pandering to any base here. My ideas are as complex and sometimes contradictory as yours are. You're watching me. You're not watching a rally for what you believe in. And I think it's really a gift to the audience when a guy sells out Red Rocks and still leaves some people not getting to, to clap for their belief because because Bill knows that's not why you do stand-up, that that's a fucked-up way to do stand-up, that it's it's really kind of lying to the audience, that it's depriving them of a real moment where they go, man, he said that, and I was with him, and then he said that, and he kind of lost me, but then he kept going, and I was like, well, I see your point, and now we're laughing together, you know? But yeah, it's tough. It's just, it's fucking tough, okay? And if you do stand-up, and you're massively unsuccessful like me, you're 24, you have anger issues, you shouldn't read articles about comics that are similar to your age, but more successful and kind of fucking suck, you know what I mean? That You shouldn't do that, that'll piss you off. It's tough not to do, you know? I've gotten a little better at not I used to, whenever anybody got anything, whether it was a super famous person or a fucking guy like me getting on a bar show, anybody getting anything just just stung me. I felt so pissed off. I felt like I was being taken from me, which is so stupid. Even though I said comedy small, there's still enough room for everybody. You know what I mean? There's, a, there's enough room. I used to get so mad. I've gotten a lot better at it. But I will say, every once in a while... You hear somebody's name, everybody loves them. And then, you know, I work at the stores, so sometimes I see these people, I see them go up live at the comedy store, so I expect they'll try a little bit. And it's just a phoned-in, bullshit fucking set. And, and you go, what the fuck? And then you read an article about them. And if you're trying to figure out what comic I'm talking about, you're not. There's a million articles about comics that suck. And you read an article about them, and you're just like, 
what the fuck are you, what, why, why? And you just always have this thought, why? And then you remember, oh, because the audience isn't deciding this because algorithms in the industry are deciding this. So that's that person's success. And maybe they can parlay that into real success of people actually liking what they do. We'll see, you know? I don't know. I thought I was over jealousy. I'm not. Of course I'm not. I'm 24. There are 60-year-old men struggling with jealousy. I'm sure I will still be struggling then. I just hope I'm better at the struggle, you know? I gotta stop acting like any of my problems are gonna be gone. I'm just gonna get better at working on them. But, uh, yeah, it was funny. I was talking to my therapist, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm, like, not jealous anymore. <laughs> like, I don't get jealous about comedy. And I was... You know, I wasn't, like, trying to talk myself up, but I was trying to give myself a little credit for mental progression. And then after that, he's like, I don't think so. I think you're a very jealous person. And that was a few weeks ago. That caused me to just drink for two weeks straight. Something about something about the guy you pay to help you out telling you that you're still fucked up. You're like, well, then who gives a fuck anyway? And that's bad uh, because that is not a reason to drink. Um, I don't know. I still haven't drank, though, so that's cool. Uh, I, I haven't really had too much of an urge to drink, which is a spooky feeling because it's a lie. That's a total lie that is happening. It's not a lie. It's true now. It's a lie to think that will be your mode of thinking going forward. Because I've drank, I've not drank for like, I don't know, maybe 15 days, something like that. It's on my phone. And I've been surprised that I'll sit at work with the open bar where I can get a fucking heavy pour of a of a Makers and Coke. And I'm surprised that I don't just want to walk right over there and do it because it feels great. Um, but I'm also not telling myself, oh, this is how you think now. Because I know in, in you know, either one day or in six months, there's going to be some night where I am just like, how do I get home without drinking? How do I get out of this fucking situation without drinking. And I hope I either have the strength to just admit that I can't sit there and not drink and go home or be able to enjoy the people around me and the, the coffee or Coke in my hand and, and have a nice night, you know? It's a weird thing, but uh, I don't know. I've just been drinking a lot of coffee and smoking a lot of cigarettes. Even if you're not in AA, you still end up drinking a lot of coffee and smoking a lot of cigarettes. Um, it's weird. Sometimes I almost feel like there's a pressure in my head. And then I think, is that drinking? Like, do I want to drink? Is that why I feel like I'm about to fucking explode? And then I think, and I go, no, I don't think it is. I think if I drank, I would just be drunk and still feel this pressure. And so maybe that pressure is the overwhelming sense of dread and anxiety that I am uh, not willing to admit to myself that I'm fighting every single day. That's probably it, you know? Um, there's, I don't know, I'm, there, I will say there's something more interesting than being drunk, um, which is having to kind of live with your head at all times. And that's not what I'm doing, okay? I drink a little coffee that pumps me up, smoke cigarettes, got zins in my mouth all day, and I like weed. So I do get a break. I do, I am not sober. I'm a drug user, definitely. I go home and I get that break. I get to kind of turn off my head and, and watch like a dumb documentary 
or something, you know. But the the drunk is really the best is really for me the best distraction. Because when I get high, I can still freak out. When I'm drunk, I can't, you know. The worst it gets when I'm drunk is I get pissed. And that actually uh, prompted me to start my new podcast with my friend Shane. You know what I mean? So it's not even the worst. But uh, but it's nice, you know. It's like it's nice to not have that. It's nice to feel nervous and uncomfortable in a social situation and then say to yourself, oh, yeah, man, this is it. This is the drug. This is this is just the struggle of life. There is no hotter shot to your veins than this right now. Oh, that feel. Oh, you think everybody here hates you? Okay, well maybe go talk to some people and prove yourself wrong while not being drunk, pussy. That's what's up. You know? That's what I like to do. So I don't know. I've been enjoying that and, you know, maybe I'll drink tomorrow. I don't know. I don't I don't think I'll ever be sober. I think even if I get like 30 years, there might be one night where I just like freak everyone out and drink a martini and then maybe never do it again. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. Um I'd be really surprised if I get if I double the time I have now. I'd be very surprised. Uh but I think that's good. I think there's also yeah, I think I think kind of you know, it's funny because like some people if they quit something or, or kind of just stop doing something, they're kind of like, oh, I just can't get that edge anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I can't, like, get drunk and feel crazy anymore. I'm enjoying the edge of uh, having to not I'm, – I'm enjoying the edge of not having alcohol as an excuse and just having to face life. That's a fucking edge. You know what I mean? To have to just work a full shift and just be like, all right – the only thing that's going to get me out of this is weed, you know? I think a lot of sober people listening to this just being like, yeah, I don't understand how this could possibly be a struggle. You're fucking high. And you're right. But but you know, you know, you know that fucking alcohol is different and beautiful. It's always funny to me when stoners are like, why don't, why don't people just smoke weed instead of getting drunk? It's still getting fucked up and it's so much safer and it's like, what the fuck are you talking? How how many times have you shared one beer with a friend and then been sitting in a circle being like, I got to get the fuck out of here? That's what weed does. That's a, Beer never does that. They're completely different things. I don't know how people act like they're exchangeable. The only reason they do is because they're both on the same level of each of their sort of respective classes. You know, like, like I guess, like weed is is the beer of drugs you know but that's also not true because a little bit of weed can fuck somebody up a little bit of beer that only fucks up a pussy or a baby you know but i don't know not drinking's been cool i don't know how much longer i'll think it's cool but right now i'm just enjoying that i don't think it's cool you know i think it probably would be good for me in my life to to swear it off and to say never again but uh, but I don't know. I don't want to do that. Because like I said in the last episode, if I do say that, then everything's fucked six ways to Sunday. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't like being told what to do, even if it's me telling myself what to do, you know? Especially, I don't like being told what to do when what is being told is, is not fun. I'll be told what to do if I'm like 
you know, getting to feature for uh, a headliner and he gives me some notes. I like that. I love taking lessons. I don't like taking orders. Do not drink. That sucks. But uh, you're nervous on stage. You got to just connect. Stop being a pussy. Nice. I like that, you know. But uh, I don't know. I've also had a fun time not drinking, realizing I actually like a lot of people in my life. That, I think, has really saved me. I think a lot of people, especially if you kind of feel like you're struggling with something, once you stop doing that thing, you look around and you go, ah, fuck, I only hung out with you guys so I could get drunk or high. The good thing is, at the comedy store, I get to hang out with so many funny comedians. I feel very lucky to hang out with them, and and, and not because they're successful, because I know they're talented and, and should be successful. And so, you know, it's what's great is, yeah, even if you're sober, those people are still as funny as they've always been. And drunk or not, it's just fun to talk to them. So I do feel lucky for that, you know. I think that's what helps a lot of people is... uh is a good support group. And, you know, I'm not really talking about not drinking much. I'm definitely not asking anybody for any help. Um, so it's not like all those people I mentioned are being like, hey, man, it's so great you're not drinking. No, no, no. They're supporting me in the way of just being so funny and interesting to talk to that I know I can go to the comedy store and I can hang out fully sober and leave having had a great time because... I know a lot of people think this isn't possible, but the only thing better than four beers is one to two good riffs. And if you get in a good riff, you know, you know, you're you're talking about how uh, the Grinch is responsible for everything happening in Israel Palestine right now. If you get in something like that, that will fire your brain with dopamine and will keep you floating above all of your vices for a little while, you know. And that's something to be thankful for. I'm very happy for that. Um, and, you know, we'll just see how long that lasts. I'm pretty good at ruining good things for myself. So who who knows how much longer this will go. But but I don't know. I fucking, man, the airport is crazy. Has anyone talked about this? If you've already heard this concept about the airport being crazy, just log off, but... No, I uh, dropped my friend off at the airport yesterday. For some reason, the maps took me on an alternate route, which seemed fine. And then we got close to the airport, and it was so gridlocked. And it was fucked because there was only one lane, the right lane, that was going to turn into the airport. And what I knew what would happen happened is there's a long line in the right lane, and then there's like 15 douchebags in the lane directly left of the right, you know, the lane right next to it, that are trying to cut all these guys and cut in. And that just fucking, it doesn't work because it just slows everything down. And all those people cutting are like, oh, this line sucks. And it's like, it sucks because of you. Because we could all just be going, following the rules one at a time, but then we're trying to go and then you're like cutting us off. And then not having enough space to move, so you're cutting the other lane, and you're fucking everybody. It's like, I don't know if you guys remember in middle school and high school when you gave back your textbooks to the textbook room and you found out how much of a piece of shit everybody was going to be in their life. Because if you remember, there's about a hundred, there's like a, like a half a football field long line to 
give your textbooks back. And then at the beginning of that line is just a horde, just a circle of people trying to cut. And all those people in the circle trying to cut are complaining. They're the ones complaining. They're up there going, fuck, man, why is this taking so long? It's like, well, because if we did this one at a time in a line, it would be fine. But you're cutting everybody. So what it really means is there's a whole line of people here not moving forward, and then a horde that's just slowly fucking everybody in the ass to give their textbooks back. And, I, you know, you learn a lot about life. I think there's a lot of people that cut the line. They look at the people in the line, and they go, those people are suckers. And I get that. Because sometimes we are. Because we believe in the line, you know? But there's a big part of me that just can't bring myself to to be part of the problem like that. I'm part of a lot of problems. I have a phone. Bad news. I'm an American. Bad news. I'm a white dude. Bad news, you know? But when it comes to lines is when I have morals. I like a line. A line, a line, a well-run line gives me hope in the world. Think about how many times you've been in like an airport line, you know, the textbook line, a, a, some kind of line to get into a stadium, to get into a concert, and everybody's just said, hey, I'll just stay in the line until we're in there. Never, never. It never happens. There's always guys that think they're geniuses. They go, oh, oh, good idea. I can cut the line. And I hate those guys because those guys get to think they're smart. Those guys get to go, these guys don't know you can just cut. And it's like, no, we know that. We are just not selfish pricks. You're a cunt. You're not smart. You're a cunt. There is a large and vast difference between us okay and the people cutting are always people in like teslas because they're like it's the cool new thing everybody's so stupid not for having this meanwhile the car's made of plastic and lights itself on fire it's like no man you're not an idiot i mean you're not smart because you did the new thing you're you're a dumbass it's not selfish to own a tesla but i do notice a lot of those people also cut lines you know it is what it is you know and Sometimes when I'm in those situations, I see myself as a movie character where I'm just like, maybe I'm just the bitch, you know? Maybe I'm the guy that's mad at everybody else that never moves forward because he just keeps getting cut, you know? I also don't think that's necessarily, you know, purely how the world works. I think there are ways to uh, to get somewhere without cutting, you know? I also think sometimes the waiting is good. I think especially when I'm talking about comedy right now, I'm in line and I don't want to cut it by marketing myself really well and getting opportunities I'm not ready for, you know? All those people doing that can have it. Good for them. I don't want anybody to see me for a, for a while, you know? I would like money, but that's the trade-off you make. You go, hey, I'm going to enjoy being a door guy, being young, trying to find my voice in the shadows. I'm going to enjoy that. But if I'm going to enjoy that, I also got to kind of enjoy being fucking broke and being a nobody, you know? and believing that there's something here that is actually worth giving time to. There's something about comics that want to pop off within the first year of doing stand-up that almost makes me feel like they don't believe in themselves. Like, because there's something wrong with a comic that goes, well, it's more important to post clips than it is to go to mics and work on stuff. Because what they're saying is, hey, if I give myself a bunch of time to get good at this thing, it's actually not going to be worth it. 
what would be worth it is to just market whatever I have because it's not that good. So we just got to cash in on it as quickly as we can. I think that's sad. You know, I think, I think what I'm doing is, uh, it, it also requires a weird amount of cockiness to be like, you know, I'm going to not, uh, give in to these, you know, I post clips, but I'm not like fucking slobbering over it. Like a lot of people, um, you know, I think there's a certain amount of delusion in my head to be like, you know, and I don't need to because I'm going to get better and one day this will be worth seeing and I don't think it's worth seeing right now. But I like that. You know, I like that. Also, this is kind of me justifying me being lazy and probably not doing enough business side of the job as I should. But fuck it. Fuck you. Okay. Talking for like an hour every week. What do you want me to do? Releasing a podcast with my friend Shane Bianchi. We did our first episode. That shit was like two hours. That's interesting to me. Go watch a clip. Fuck you. We got two hours. How much goddamn time have we done? I'm going to check. I'm not cutting that part either, okay? You're part of the process. We're at 50 minutes. We got 10 to go. Time to burn some time, motherfucker. Uh, biker gangs are fucking gay. Uh, I will say that. Uh, I don't know who they think they are intimidating at this point, but it is, uh, I mean, I know South Park has already covered this, but I was just, I was thinking about it last night because if you don't know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is Hell's Angels territory. Where, as far as I'm concerned, uh, biker gangs are kind of like the mafia where, like, the government has kind of snubbed out most of all of its crime, you know, I guess there's like the one percenters or whatever who are like, we're the one percent that still does crime, but they also literally have a patch on their shirt that tells people that, which makes me feel like they're not actual criminals. But Sunset Boulevard is Hell's Angels territory. Last night I saw a Mongol, which if you don't know is also a, uh, I think predominantly Southern California biker gang, uh, who's the enemy of the Hell's Angels. I think they're kind of I think the Mongols are kind of like the... Because everybody knows the Hells Angels, and a lot of people know the Mongols, but not as much. So it's almost a bit of a popularity contest, which is funny. But I saw a Mongol on Sunset Boulevard. He was encroaching in Hells Angels territory. And it's weird. It's like they're trying to start something, I guess, because it was interesting, because if you know anything about bikers, which I don't know much, and maybe things have changed, so I'm just off... I know you come here for biker knowledge, okay? But this guy was riding around with his vest on, with full patches. He had the Mongols' name, he had the logo, and then he had, I think, where he's from under. And if uh, the way biker gangs work is if you are, like, a full-fledged member of the gang, you have all those patches on your back. If you're, like, newer to the gang, you only have, like, maybe one of those patches or maybe none it's something about, like, he's a full-patch member. It's almost like being a made guy, um, you know, because it's like, hey, you're cool enough, you are allowed to rep our specific gang. But a lot of, uh, a lot of them stopped wearing their vests because I think the act of wearing the vest might have actually became illegal. I think the cops might have said, like, you can't openly promote that you're in a criminal gang. And more than it being illegal, I think they might have just told a lot of bikers, like, hey, if you wear the patch, we're just going to arrest you because you're telling us you're a criminal. So most guys wear their vests inside out. Um, but interestingly enough, I have seen 
Mongols and Hell's Angels with just full, here's the vest, here's the whole thing. So I don't know if there's a different stance w- from cops and biker gangs now. But yeah, this guy was 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 riding, and they were there. And the reason I think biker gangs are gay is because they're not as uh, strong as they used to be. So now it's just a bunch of guys with a hobby, if we're being honest. Like, I'm sure there's a few that are still crazy, but I don't know. One time we had a group of Mongols at the comedy store, at the bar. And uh, this is how gay they are, is all they were doing was standing in uh, standing in such a large group that it blocked one of the pathways to the bar. And so one of our uh, one of our security guards, who's a bigger dude, uh, took it upon himself to just walk through them and just push his body through all of them and send a message uh, of fuck you guys, get out of the way. You're in the wrong place. Um, and they left. And listen, my friend's a big guy. I've seen him fight. Been in a lot of fights. Blue collar. Not a pussy. Could have taken a few of them. The fact of the matter is, there was more than a few of them. There was enough, quote, tough guys that they could have beat his ass if they really wanted to, but they didn't. Which just shows that it's like, okay, so are you guys just like an aesthetic biker gang? Because you just let one guy, who's not even a biker, disrespect your entire group. And you just took it like bitches, and you left. Now, maybe if he was a Hells Angels guy, they would have fought him because, you know, criminals usually just want to fight other criminals. And and that Hells Angels wouldn't have called the cops or whatever. I don't know. But... Yeah, really weird. I don't know. Biker gangs now, I don't get it. I, I, I'm going to look them up more and figure out what the deal is. Because it's like, are those guys still selling meth? Like, are they, I wonder how much money the Hells Angels make per year. Because, like, sometimes you see those guys in, like, a Christmas parade now. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, good for you guys for going legit. But why not just take the vests off if you're not doing crime anymore? You know what I mean? Because you're the hell's angel. You're telling people you're crazy. But if, if you're not crazy anymore, then what the fuck, you know? I don't know. A lot of, uh... I feel, I don't know. White people, I guess we're not the best at running criminal organizations. Because, like, the two biggest ones in the country of, like, the mafia and biker gangs have kind of been snuffed out at least like the italian mafia has been snuffed out that being said in california there are like armenian i think some russian and definitely uh like mexican and and south american mafias like ms-13 and and any of the cartels those are mafias they're just mostly drug mafias but it's weird it's like all the white guys i guess like we're very glorified for our criminal organizations. We're very there's a lot of lore around the Hell's Angels and the Gambino crime family. But both of those organizations have been really snuffed out to a point that I don't know why in the last couple of years every fucking mafia guy is in a documentary just spilling the beans. Meanwhile, the the fucking the Latin mafia or whatever, you know, just let's refer to all those groups as a whole. 
and 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 every gang in America, you know, the Bloods and Crips and every, like they're all still up and running. So I guess we're bad at it. I think we were good at it. Maybe we were too good at it. I don't know. But honestly, like El Chapo's also too good at it and his organization is still running, you know? So I don't know. The cartels are still up. They cannot stop them. But maybe because they're not in America that makes it tougher. I don't know. But, man, that's, John Gotti was such a dumbass, it's kind of fucking crazy. Because I just watched this John Gotti documentary. There's all these people in it. I also, just really quick, I think the mafia might actually be coming back. And the way they're doing it is all these people who have already been indicted and ratted and are, like, out of the organization, I think they're going on documentaries to act like the mafia's done. Where, meanwhile, there's, like, a new generation or guys that weren't ever really caught up that are secretly doing mafia stuff while all these documentaries are being made, and they're like, yeah, everybody thinks it's done. That's a distraction. We're doing business. That's my hope. I don't know why that's my hope. Because I'm an American. We like mafias. But anyway, John Gotti. I mean... I was listening to this documentary. They have all these tapes of him. And he just sounds like a guy that watched a lot of movies about mob documentaries. Because he just spills the beans in places where he should know there's a bug. Like, this motherfucker was so stupid that after he, like, beat a couple charges, he took the headquarters of, I believe it was the Colombo or the Gambino, I don't know of his crime family, the biggest one in New York, the boss of bosses, and he just moved it to fucking Little Italy, which is like the historic mob area, which is very funny that it is that simple that Little Italy is a historic mob area, but of course, he moved it there, and cops just immediately just set up shop with pictures, high-res videos, and bugs all over the place. And he's just in this place that, for some reason, he either thinks is secured or thinks even if it's bugs, it doesn't matter, and he's not only, like, saying stuff, he's saying stuff like he's a snitch trying to get stuff out of other people, which he wasn't. That's how dumb he is. He's just in there, and he's like, you want to kill a guy? You come to me. I'm the boss. Or you go to Sammy Gravino. He's the underboss. Or you go to this guy. He's the consigliere. These guys, the capos and soldiers. But if you want to kill somebody, you go through me. And how did I get in this position? I killed Frank Genovese. That's how I got here. You know, it's like, crazy how dumb he is like I just don't know why even if you thought you were in a safe place that you would ever even say that because he's talking to other guys in the mafia that know the rules like why are you saying these things also a lot of these mafia documentaries are cool but like it's weird because even though these guys have already went to jail and they already ratted, they kind of have no reason not to just say everything. They still, like, they just say stuff everybody already knows. Like, it's like, it's like this Tommy Dovato, associate of the Gambino crime family, and then he goes on and he's like, never rat, because if you rat, the cops find out, and it takes down the whole business. And you're like, who doesn't know that by now? Who's watching a mob documentary being like, hmm, a rat, you say? The whole time you're watching it, you're like, can you just talk about the guy you killed? Can you just please talk about the specifics of the time and place where you were? Why are you telling me how the mob works? From what I've learned, it's a simple enough organization. There's a few rules. I've learned all of them by now. Please stop telling me the rules of the mafia. 
There are a million movies explaining it. There are a million documentaries explaining it. I don't need to... to I get it. It's a secret organization. There's a hierarchy. You get made. You never cooperate. Doing time is a part of the life. Got it. Now tell me about who you murdered. Tell me about the murder. What murder? But, uh, yeah, John Gotti died in prison, as he should. He really just made the whole thing stupid. He just, he got himself on the news, and he made a secret organization so public, and it sucks because, you know, uh, I, I honestly think a mafia can be beneficial to a community because uh, the people in those communities will sometimes tell you they are. Like, in that documentary, there's a lady, she's like, I feel safe with the mob here. And they're like, why? And she's like, every other neighborhood, my car gets stolen. Not in this one. And it's because guys know that if they go into Little Italy and steal a nice old lady's car, that lady owns a shop where above that shop they have mob meetings and they give that lady a little cash every week and they appreciate that lady and they protect that lady and that's why she allows them to do that. So if you steal her car, you are going to end up in a ice shipping factory getting pierced with an ice pick through your chest. You know what I mean? And that's a lot scarier than, well, if I get caught, I'll go to court. Maybe I can beat the charge. You know what I mean? I don't think police should act that way. But there's something about a mafia where the issue with policing now is a lot of police don't live in the jurisdictions they police. So they don't really give a fuck about the community. They just want to take out what they think are bad guys, you know? But the mob lives in that community. So there is an investment in that community that is for themselves which means the little old ladies are protected and they know who the fuck doesn't belong in the community and they get their ass beat if they fuck up and anybody in that organization who fucks up gets their ass beat and I'm not going to say that mob guys are good guys because they hurt a lot of innocent people but I like to think that when it's done right it is a group of criminals that agree to only kill other criminals and let the civilians live a nice life. It seems like it only gets bad when people get greedy and they start punching the old lady in the face and saying, we want this much money a week and you better give it to us. You know, that's what's fucked up. But also, there's, I think there's a nice way of extortion where, listen, you pay your taxes for police and you don't feel protected. I'd rather give a guy a couple hundred bucks a week and I know that if anything happens in my shop, all that money I paid actually will mean something. That I can go to him, there's no bureaucracy, there's no checks and balances, you know? The only checks and balances are telling another guy, hey, we're going to check and balance his face into the ground. Ooh, mop talk. But it means something, you know? I think that feels good for a community to go, you know, it is, it's annoying that I got to give these guys money, but my windows just got broken. So I'm going to go to Tommy DeVito, backup quarterback of the New York Giants, also known mafia associate. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to tell him I feel unsafe and I want you to find out who did this. They're not only going to find out who did this, they're going to get the fucking window union to come give you some free windows, and also they make money from giving you those windows. Why the fuck would they not help you, you know? But anyway, I was in the mafia for 34 years, and I'm glad I got out. But uh, this was fun. I hope it was interesting. I know these episodes lately haven't been so funny, but... Uh, yeah, listen, I got the new podcast with Shane Bianchi. We're going to start promoting that soon. It's going to come out soon. 
that's funny. That's riffing, goofing, gabbing. This is, you know, I'm talking. It's funny when it's funny. I'm not going to talk about the fucking news because I don't always know enough about the news. Uh, but if you liked this, leave a comment, like, and subscribe. Love you all. Goodbye.